Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee and, and let's get, get our fix. This week's episode, we are talking about the case of Deborah Flores Navariz. Today, we are drinking an iced caramel macchiato, and it's a super simple recipe. I feel like I say that for every recipe, but if you don't already know this recipe, head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com and click on the coffee tab. This week, we are shouting out A underscore J, Becca, and Jet Castle. They've liked, commented, rated, reviewed, or shared our content across all social media outlets. So thank you guys so much. We are beyond grateful for all of the support you guys have been giving us with this podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or on our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com. You'll find there a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations and there is a pretty amazing donate button. And also, if you're an Amazon shopper like us, you can click on our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. All you have to do is add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Imagine that today is the day before the biggest day of your life. The career you have been desperately trying to make a name for yourself in is finally giving you a window of opportunity. Suddenly, you get a call from your on-again, off-again boyfriend asking you to come over. So you, of course, do because who wouldn't when you're young and fighting for love? So you go to his house, an argument ensues. Things escalate, and suddenly, everything is black. This day... I have just described for you was December 12th, 2010 for Deborah Flores Navariz. Debbie had worked hard to get recognized in Las Vegas, Nevada as a showgirl. Her time had finally come. Her dreams were finally coming true. Then it was all taken away in the blink of an eye. So let's back up a little bit. Debbie, 31, was born on July 5, 1979 in Puerto Rico. She lived in Maryland and Washington, D.C. growing up. She had a sister, Celeste, who was one year older than her. They were very close in both age and their sibling bond. Debbie was very smart and had obtained a bachelor's of science degree in international business, a master's degree in finance, and went into law school where she earned her Juris Doctorate degree in criminal law. In 2008, when the economy took a turn for the worst, she lost her job in finance and decided she was going to take advantage of the situation, relocate from Maryland to Las Vegas, Nevada, and work to fulfill her dream of being a Las Vegas showgirl. She had little to no training, but was a fan of the arts and was very talented, so she knew with hard work she could make it someday. Although she had minimal experience, I should mention that Debbie was a former cheerleader for the National Football League's Washington Redskins team 
She is full of surprises and amazes me with her talent, drive, wits, and experience. I'll say. I mean, all of those degrees, not to mention, like, fully into the arts and everything like that. I'm already that. jealous. She is, like, <laughs> all around an amazing She's woman. who you would aspire to be. I mean, yes. she's... Yeah. She has a lot And she's of, beautiful. She had a lot going for her. Yes. So, with all of that in mind, the decision was made. She and her boyfriend at the time, Jamie McGee, relocated to the City of Lights. Her dreams prevailed. The relationship did not. McGee accused Debbie of stalking him and even obtained a temporary protective order against her in 2009. However, she reportedly violated that order on more than one occasion. Friends would describe Debbie as a smart but wild Latina with a spitfire personality. To substantiate this description, we will point a four-year span in Maryland where five restraining orders were placed against her, and she was arrested on charges of assault, resisting arrest, and harassment. I'm sorry, but that just sounds like us Puerto Ricans. Okay? <laughs> it does. <laughs> so back to the story. Anyways. But Las Vegas, where beautiful go-go dancers are a fixture in nightclubs and casinos, welcomed the striking 5'2 Puerto Rican with big brown eyes and long dark hair. She found work dancing at Rain Nightclub at the Palms. She worked and trained hard until she was eventually able to land a more sought-after position in Luxor's show, Fantasy. This is a topless show and is performed several times a month. She worked hard expanded her circle of friends, and somewhere along the line met Jason Blue Griffith. By all accounts, an easygoing, likable dancer in Cirque du Soleil's Beatles Love show at the Mirage. Griffith is originally from Brooklyn, New York, and relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada for similar dreams and aspirations as Debbie. It's not unusual for two performers to strike up a relationship. Their months-long, stormy relationship emerged, even landing on police radar. Debbie was identified as the aggressor in at least one incident and as the victim in two other altercations. During one episode on October 22, 2010, Debbie reportedly had told Griffith she was pregnant and he proceeded to throw her phone across the street, followed by punching and kicking her several times. This landed Griffith in handcuffs, arrested on account of battery domestic violence and coercion with force, but the charges were not prosecuted and later dropped. So who is Jason Omar Griffith? He was born on December 10th, 1978, which means he had just recently celebrated his 32nd birthday. Griffith can be described as a black male standing five foot seven and weighing 172 pounds. He was raised by his mother in Brooklyn, New York, and described his childhood as loving and supportive with no report of physical or sexual abuse or neglect. In 1996, he graduated from the High School of Performing Arts and attended the New York University for a couple of weeks before dropping out to pursue his career as a professional dancer. In 2007, he was married, but had been separated from his wife since December of 2008. Griffith had two sons, ages 7 and 4, by 2010, but they resided with their mother, who had custody of them. He struggled with depression during the times where he was going through a breakup in his relationships, but there was no reported substance abuse history. On December 12, 2010, Debbie left her condominium a block east of the Las Vegas Strip, dressed fashionably but casually in a dark shirt, jeans, and knee-high black boots. She was on her way to meet up with Griffith at his residence. 
Okay, so this is a little side note and maybe a little bit of foreshadowing, but it's kind of creepy because their plans were to watch the Showtime thriller Dexter that evening. I love Dexter. I know. So here at Crime Addicts Podcast, we are fans of the show Dexter. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. But Mm -hmm. as like a quick little summary, if you don't know, it is about a forensic technician specializing in bloodstain pattern analysis for the Miami, Florida Metropolitan Police Department, who led a secret parallel life as a vigilante serial killer, hunting down murderers who have not been adequately punished for the justice system due to corruption or legal technicalities. So it is so good. He had access to these cases because he was like the forensic technician on them. And then when he would follow it and see that they just got off or whatever the situation yeah. was, he would be the vigilante to come in, murder them. And then he like dumped their bodies in, uh-huh. off the boat that he owned in like black bags and he was very careful very clean very neat because he knew how to hide it right because he was a forensic technician exactly oh my gosh he knew exactly like it but now you know what it is she went over there with plans to watch that with him so that's a little foreshadowing keep that in mind as we continue on (laughs) it's very interesting and that gets corroborated by like trial testimony too which will come up later so i'm not just making that up (laughs) okay anyways back to debbie as indicated in the intro this was the day before the biggest day of her life she was expected to perform alongside R&B star Cisco, heralding the start of her two-week run with Fantasy. This performance, which was her concept, might have been Debbie's big breakthrough. But she didn't show up, so her friends reported her missing. Her sister, Celeste, left her child, job, and her whole life in Atlanta, Georgia, with their mother, Elise Navariz. Celeste was completely unfamiliar with the city and had no real connection, nor did she have any money to fund this adventure other than her savings. Even her job fired her during this time for leaving. She was determined to find out what happened to her sister and followed every lead she stumbled across. She was doing media interviews as often as possible, pleading to the public for help in locating her sister. This case had made headlines, and the fantasy producer wrote a statement to the media. It read, quote, Our thoughts and prayers are with Debbie's family through this difficult time. We strongly urge anyone who may have information about her whereabouts to contact the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department immediately. Debbie's cell phone records were pulled and indicated that Debbie had last used her cell phone on December 12, 2010 and was observed via video surveillance entering her vehicle. Detectives investigating Debbie's disappearance first encountered Griffith on December 13th, where he said the last time he spoke to Debbie was the day prior at his house, but she seemed fine and left in her vehicle. On December 14th, Debbie's roommate contacted the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department to report Debbie and her vehicle missing. She reported that Debbie had gone to her ex-boyfriend's residence on December 12th, 2010. She stated the victim's parents had not heard from her And the week prior, Debbie had sent a message to her mother that if anything happened to her, to call Jason. On December 15th, Griffith was again contacted outside his North Las Vegas home, changing a car tire. He avoided eye contact and reported he spoke to Debbie on December 12th. However, she never exited her vehicle. She was alone and he spoke with her through the driver's window of her vehicle. He described the conversation as normal and reported she left because she needed to go to rehearsal. Officers discovered Griffith and the victim had a violent domestic relationship. In addition, Debbie's vehicle was discovered in a backyard of a residence about six miles from Griffith's residence. She drove a maroon 1997 Chevrolet Prism. On December 17, 2010, Griffith's former girlfriend, Calais Casorso, contacted the LVMPD detective and reported that on December 7th or 8th, 
2010, she received a text message from Griffith asking her if she knew where she could get a gun. Griffith stated he could not obtain or possess a gun due to a previous domestic violence arrest. On December 22, 2010, a search warrant was served at Griffith's residence. Detectives met with Griffith and asked if he could be interviewed in reference to Debbie, who was still missing. Griffith stated he had been mistreated by the police and the media regarding this event and a previous domestic violence between him and Debbie. He related that the police had fabricated a report and he was booked erroneously for the battery. He had obtained an attorney and was told not to talk to the police. Griffith was transported to his attorney's office and Griffith consented to an interview with his attorney present. Weeks had passed. Siskel's performances with fantasy ended and Debbie's family spent the holidays without her. During this time, Celeste was still in Las Vegas looking for her, which means she missed out on the holidays with her family too. On a Facebook page dedicated to finding Debbie, Celeste laminated the agony of returning to Atlanta from Las Vegas without reaching her goal, finding Debbie, the outgoing girl she tried to protect growing up. On January 4, 2011, Celeste wrote, quote, Debbie, I'm sorry, but I'll be back immediately to look and find you. I'll never stop looking for you, end quote. However, Celeste never got the chance for a return trip. The next day, on January 5th, 2011, police received a tip that hurled the case in a new direction. Casorso had contacted the detective and reported Griffith and his roommate, Luis Colombo, approached her in reference to allowing them to store something in her apartment. Detectives met with her on January 7, 2011. She reported Griffith had asked if he could store some items in her apartment. Griffith arrived with his items on December 15, 2010, but left to retrieve what he described as a plastic tub. She saw a U-Haul truck parked outside, and she walked to the back of the truck. She saw Griffith and Colombo standing on either side of a large plastic tub weighing approximately 700 pounds. She described the tub as nearly full with a dark charcoal gray concrete that looked rocky on the surface and the sides of the tub were bulging out. However, she did not see a lid for the tub. She asked Griffith what was in the tub and after hesitating, he asked if she really wanted him to tell her what was in the tub. She told him he better tell her if he intended to store it in her apartment. He told her Debbie was in the tub. She reported she freaked out and told them to leave. Casarso stated she didn't call the police because she didn't want to believe it, and later because she was afraid of Colombo. On January 7, 2011, officers contacted Colombo and interviewed him. He agreed to tell the detectives what happened. He stated he felt partially responsible because on the night this happened, Debbie had been involved in a physical confrontation with Griffith at his residence. He stated that during the argument between Debbie and Griffith, he had to pull Griffith off Debbie because he was choking her with his hands around her neck. He stated he made sure everything was okay before he left. When he returned to the residence, he noticed Griffith was at the front door and told him that this was a, quote, change his diaper moment and that he had, quote, fucked up. Griffith walked him to the studio room and showed him where Debbie was lying dead on the floor. She was not breathing, and she was cold to the touch when he helped. Griffith placed her into the empty plastic tub. 
He described how Griffith purchased bags of concrete and mixed the concrete in the garage and filled the plastic tub with concrete to completely cover Debbie's naked body. Griffith had cut Debbie's clothes off and taped her legs up in order to make her fit in the tub face up with her knees up to her chest. They left the tub in the garage to harden overnight and rented a U-Haul the next day. They used the dolly to get the tub into the truck, and after trying to store the tub in Casarso's second-story apartment, he drove the truck with Griffith following in his vehicle. They parked the truck overnight at a local truck stop. Griffith got keys to a house belonging to some friends who were out of the country. He went to the house by himself and attempted to get the tub into the house, but the tub started leaking, so he called Griffith for help. They kept the tub in the living room for a few days prior to returning with new plastic tubs, a sledgehammer, a handsaw, and cleaning supplies. They broke Debbie's body out of the concrete and Griffith sawed both of her legs with a handsaw. They placed her body and legs in plastic bags in separate plastic tubs. They filled the tubs with enough concrete to cover her body and legs and placed the lids on the containers. They placed the tubs in the closet and sealed the closet doors with sealant. They sealed the tools in another room and left the first plastic tub and broken concrete in the living room. He led the detectives to the address where Debbie's body was located. Officers located the broken plastic tub and broken pieces of concrete in the living room. There was a large piece of concrete inside the remains of the plastic tub that had the impression of a hand and a large amount of long, dark colored hair. The closets in the two bedrooms were sealed shut with spray foam insulation. Inside a bedroom closet were two green plastic tubs stacked one on top of the other. The lids were secured with locking handles. When the tubs were opened, they were found to contain black plastic bags covered with concrete. The tools were found sealed in the closet bedroom. On January 8, 2011, the detectives made contact with Griffith and transported him to the homicide office. During the interview, Griffith denied having anything to do with Debbie's death. He admitted renting the U-Haul and stated he was in possession of the only keys to the truck. When confronted with specific questions relating to Debbie's death or the disposal of her body, he refused to answer those specific questions without his attorney's presence. Griffith was arrested and transported to the Clark County Detention Center and booked accordingly. Griffith was charged with felony murder, felony to destroy evidence, and felony battery domestic violence strangulation. As the detective was transporting Griffith to the jail, Griffith asked how long he was going to spend in prison. Griffith explained that because of the previous encounter with the police and how they handled the case in him, he panicked and didn't call the police when it happened. He related that Debbie was crazy and he couldn't stop her. She just kept doing things to him and she forced the situation. He stated no one else was involved and asked the detective to make sure no one else was arrested. He further related that his roommate only got involved after Debbie was dead, and it was after Debbie was dead that all of the amateurish stuff happened. Mr. Griffith described Debbie as crazy and volatile and stated that she had attacked him. He related how Debbie told everyone she had a gun, and although he never saw the gun, he believed she had one. He further related that she attacked him and he thought she had a gun and she was dead. She forced him to do what he did and he panicked. 
When the detective asked if he wanted to give a statement, Griffith advised he wouldn't because he had to keep in mind his self-preservation and couldn't just give everything up. He was worried about the rest of his life. Griffith stated that his roommate only became involved after Debbie was dead and no one else helped him. It wasn't a premeditated thing and the death was a spur of the moment thing. He was not a cold-blooded killer and he felt bad about what happened to Debbie, but he panicked. On January 10th, 2011, the Clark County coroner described Debbie's death as asphyxiation due to neck compression and the manner of her death as homicide. 200 people attended a memorial held at the Luxor just days after detectives discovered her body. Debbie was buried in her native Puerto Rico. On February 9, 2011, a grand jury indicted Griffith with one count of felony murder. Griffith proceeded to plead not guilty to the charge. Jurors were questioned for three days about what they remembered about news reports on Debbie's disappearance in December of 2010 and Griffith's arrest in January of 2011. Griffith's public defender, Abel Yanez, fought to keep photos of Debbie's body and the possibly incriminating statements Griffith made to the detective during transportation to the jail out of the hands of the jurors. Griffith's defense attorneys argued that he had invoked his right to remain silent and requested an attorney during his interrogation, rendering his statements off-limits to prosecutors. A judge disagreed. During the trial, prosecutors argued Griffith killed his girlfriend because he was seeing other women and wanted to get her out of the way. The defense painted a different picture, arguing that Debbie was a stalking, violent woman who had threatened her boyfriend on numerous occasions. The defense tried to portray Debbie as the aggressor based on her history of volatile relationships. Quote, Debbie's behavior demonstrates a common plan or scheme that she had with the men she dated, harass and stalk them, at times being physically violent, in order to place them in fear of their safety, which thereby allowed her to control them and prevent them from completely ending their relationship, Griffith's defense attorney wrote in a motion. Celeste sees it a different way. She said, quote, when Debbie fell for someone, Debbie fell hard. She would give you 120%. Debbie, who once studied law in Maryland, set out to achieve her goals. That same passion also was her Achilles heel when it came to the relationships. She tended to date the broken ones, men who battled alcohol addiction, depression, and anger issues, and would try to maintain toxic relationships. If a heated argument led to my sister's death, Debbie's mistake was not walking away. The only thing she had on her was a mouth. She was a talker, but not a fighter. Just as she was loved, so was the man accused of killing her. Griffith had lived in Las Vegas for six years. In the month after he was charged with murder, more than a dozen friends wrote letters to the judge urging that his bail be reduced. They described him as a fun-loving cast member. Quote, he joked around with the rest of the crew and never gave any of us a reason to feel we were not safe in his presence, wrote Nancy Burton, who was the executive director of the Nathan Burton Comedy Magic Show. He was a good listener. Quote, he was patient and always there if I called him on the phone upset or needed to ask for his opinion on things, wrote fellow Love Cast member Tina Cannon. He was a bit of a health nut. Quote, never drank, he loved buffalo wild wings, but most times I invited him, he said he had to stay away and take care of his six-pack. His friend Matt Obernesser wrote, And he was a caring father. Quote, Jason would always call his children when they couldn't be in Las Vegas. 
Jason would often go to Reno to visit his children. He was very much a family-oriented man, wrote a friend and one-time landlord, Regina Axley. A judge refused to lower his bail, so Griffith remained in the Clark County Detention Center throughout the duration of this trial. During trial, the jury heard over a dozen 911 calls Griffith made to police about Debbie that he said were ignored. The defendant said officers ridiculed his pleas for help. A key piece of evidence for the defense was a video recording that Griffith made while confronting Debbie about his car tires being slashed. In it, Debbie admitted to hitting Griffith, entering his house, looking on his computer, pouring egg whites on his car, and slashing three tires. Prosecutors said Griffith fanned Debbie's anger by deceiving her about his sexual relationships, pulling away after accompanying her to an abortion clinic in May, then resuming their intimacy about the time of her 31st birthday in early July. It was clear when they started dating in early 2010 that Debbie thought the relationship was monogamous. However, Griffith was meeting up with other women for sex and was having trouble juggling relationships with Debbie and with another dancer he was pursuing, Angus Rowe, who danced in the Cirque du Soleil show Zumanity at the New York, New York Hotel and Casino. Rowe had testified in trial that she broke up with Griffith months before the killing after finding out that he was cheating on her with another woman, which would have been Debbie, but then told him in early December of 2010 that they could give Love another shot if Griffith broke up with Debbie. Okay, so remember Griffith's ex-girlfriend who he tried to leave Debbie's body at her apartment, Casorso. She testified that she was stunned and confused when Griffith told her about a big plastic tub of cement he wanted to store at her house contained the remains of his ex-girlfriend. She testified that she didn't call the police because she feared what happened to Debbie could happen to her. Debbie's roommate and fellow fantasy dancer, Sonia Sonnenberg, testified that on the day of the murder... Debbie had gone to Griffith's house to watch Dexter and never returned. See, I told you. I told you. (laughs) It's corroborated. I didn't make it up. (laughs) Griffith's roommate, Columbo, testified he helped entomb and move the remains. He received immunity for prosecution before leading police to the tubs of concrete on January 8, 2011. Columbo says Griffith was the one who sawed Debbie's legs from her torso. Of course, Griffith in return would say it was Colombo who did the act. Isn't that convenient? So convenient. Testifying in his own defense, Griffith characterized Debbie as clingy and possessive. She claimed in the weeks before she died that she was pregnant for the second time in about six months, he said, and was going to have another abortion. Griffith testified he accompanied Debbie to a clinic for a similar procedure in May of 2010. Medical examiners found no evidence during Debbie's autopsy that she was pregnant in December. Prosecutor Mark D. Giacomo also implored jurors to remember the testimony of a medical expert who noted that might have taken only several seconds for the 31-year-old Debbie to become unconscious, but death would have taken much, much longer. Quote, You're not allowed to hold on to a woman's neck for 10 minutes and not have it be first-degree murder, the prosecution stated. Did Jason reasonably fear that he was going to either be killed or receive serious bodily injury? And finally, why didn't Jason call the police if he was defending himself? End quote. He also pointed out that Griffith did nothing to resuscitate Debbie and coldly plotted to dispose of her body out of fear that an arrest would mean the loss of his dancing career. 
his lifestyle, and his relationship with Roe. Defense attorney Yanez said Griffith had a quality character, was a successful entertainer, and had a spotless record until he crossed paths with Debbie. In their relationship, it was Debbie who was violent, Yanez said. Quote, I've yet to hear any evidence that Jason has been violent to Debbie or that Jason has been violent in any of his prior relationships, Yanez said. She was a deeply troubled person who probably needed mental health treatment, end quote. In his closing, the defense asked jurors to consider the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, which indicates an act done in a moment of passion that wasn't intentional or malicious. Quote, this case is about who was the likely aggressor on December 12, 2010. Following a nine-day trial, the jury of seven men and five women deliberated for 14 hours over the course of two days. The jury found Griffith guilty of second-degree murder. In Nevada, a second-degree murder conviction carries a sentence of 10 years to life in prison. Griffith sat motionless as the verdict was read in the 8th Judicial District Court in Clark County, Nevada. His defense attorney reached to him and placed his arm around Griffith's shoulders. Celeste sobbed into her mother's shoulder after hearing the verdict. Quote, it's the best feeling I've had in four years. End quote. Celeste reported that she thinks about Griffith's actions daily, and his actions have literally torn her family into a million pieces. She currently suffers from depression as a result of her sister's murder, and there are days that she doesn't want to do anything. She has nightmares and can't sleep, and it's like waking up every day and reliving the nightmare over and over again. Griffith's actions devastated her entire family, and her son will never know his aunt. She related that her sister and her mother were best friends, and her sister was the glue that kept the family together. The family will never celebrate another holiday with Debbie or make any more new memories. Griffith robbed the family of their happiness. As Debbie was full of life and laughter and always encouraged the family forward. Furthermore, the family does not believe Griffith expressed any remorse for what he did. Elsie wept as she told the judge her daughter was an organ donor, but it was a gift she could not give because Griffith dismembered the body and hid it to avoid arrest for weeks. Quote, we love and miss our daughter, the distraught mother said. She's our rainbow in the sky. I never End even quote. thought about that, about the organ, organ donor. donor. Yeah. Wow, that's something that hasn't come up in like any of our cases so far. Like Nobody has mentioned that. That's definitely like a unique statement to say um and it's like i think more empowering like my that it came from her could mother have lived on and mm-hmm. helped other families or other individuals and it, that was even taken right so not only did you kill her you also took the opportunity for her for to, other people yeah. to be saved so sad that's it's just so powerful to me that it came from her mother that was yeah. it gave me chills okay yeah. <laughs> so on july 23rd 2014 at the sentencing hearing griffith said quote we all know that if I were a woman and I was accosted by a man like this, I wouldn't be standing before you here today. In tomorrow's paper, the novelists who claim to be journalists won't report the things that you really know. I asked 12 jurors to help me and give me back my freedom, but they didn't know the things that you know. I asked the police 14 times to help me and they didn't know the things that you know. So today, judge, I'm asking for a 15th time, will you help me? 
end quote. The judge ruled that some of the evidence was inadmissible during the trial. Rulings which Griffith is expected to use to appeal his second-degree murder conviction. However, the judge rebuked Griffith and told him he had no one to blame but himself for his predicament. Quote, the responsibility for this toxic and ultimately tragic relationship continuing as long as it did is entirely yours, Judge Delaney said. During their year-long on-again, off-again, tumultuous relationship, Griffith time and again had opportunities to walk away, but he always went back. The judge continued, and for no other reason that I can discern from whatever was discussed at trial, the only reason I can see was to satisfy your own narcissistic predisposition, end quote. Jason Griffith was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 10 years. Griffith never apologized, but said, quote, I am saddened by these events, and I am saddened for everyone these events have affected, end quote. Griffith said the jury was not allowed to see all the case evidence and promised his mother he would fight every day to clear his name. Celeste promised she would attend every parole hearing and fight to keep her sister's killer in prison. On August 15, 2014, Griffith filed a notice of appeal with the Supreme Court of the state of Nevada for the judgment against him for murder of the second degree. This basically advises that he plans to file appeals regarding this conviction in the future and that he does not accept the conviction as accurate. So it's basically just like a notice of an appeal that I'm going to be filing them. So then this process to actually get that filed was extensive. So hang with me for a second. So that notice of appeal was filed August of 2014. In March of 2015, Griffith filed an appeal to reconstruct the record of the jury deliberations proceedings that took place on May 21, 2014. He indicated that when he obtained all transcripts from his trial, there was a record that a jury member wrote two notes asking questions and these were answered on May 22, 2014. However, there was no transcript of this conversation, although the jurors' notes and the responses were included as court's exhibits. Griffith contacted the court and was advised that there was no transcript for that date. The state responded that the records are not incorrect and do not inaccurately portray what occurred during the course of the trial. Additionally, since the notes were added to the court's exhibits, addressed in court, and the defense did not challenge the answers and all parties disagreed, there is no error in the record. On March 23, 2015, this motion was denied due to there being no feasible way to reconstruct the record. On March 21, 2017, Griffith filed motions to withdraw counsel and for the production of documents related to his case from the public defender. On April 12, 2017, the motions were granted. On January 16, 2018, a petition for writ of habeas corpus post-conviction release was filed indicating that Griffith's 6th and 14th Amendment rights to the reasonably effective assistance of counsel were violated, which is in violation of the United States Constitution. This was filed by Griffith on his own behalf, because remember, he had filed an appeal to have his attorneys removed from his case. He alleged that he spoke to his counsel about wanting to file appeals, but they were not conducted in a timely manner, and he was unconstitutionally being held in custody had he been granted a new trial. Throughout over 150 pages, he alleged ineffective assistance to counsel and that he received prejudice because of the deficient performance of his counsel. On April 2, 2018, Griffith was appointed new counsel for this appeal. 
there were many continuances due to the substantial amount of information in the case file for the new attorney to cipher through. On March 11, 2019, nearly a year later, a motion for appointment of investigator and self-defense expert at state expense was filed. Griffith requested an investigator because trial counsel was ineffective for failing to conduct an adequate investigation in this case. In the petition for writ of habeas corpus post-conviction release supplemental brief, it is alleged that counsel failed to investigate numerous witnesses, counsel failed to conduct adequate investigation of Griffith's mental state, and counsel failed to investigate and obtain a self-defense expert. Because the counsel was appointed post-conviction, they are requesting the state to cover the cost of these matters. In response, the state did not even have any opposition to the defense's request for an investigator at the state's expense. However, they didn't agree to the request for a self-defense expert due to the fact that this case did not lend towards a credible finding of self-defense based upon the actions of Griffiths after the murder. On March 18, 2018, the court granted the motion for both an investigator and self-defense expert to be appointed at the state's expense. To the petition for writ of habeas corpus post-conviction release, the state responded that the, quote, defendant cannot demonstrate that counsel was ineffective for allegedly not investigating. He only offers bare and naked allegations and gruesome facts of this case preclude a finding of prejudice, end quote. For example, he says his attorney didn't get the proper witness, but doesn't indicate how this would have aided his self-defense theory. He indicated that his attorney didn't have his mental health evaluated, but he doesn't claim any mental health issues or produce any documentation indicating that this was of concern. The only mention of mental health concern was sporadic depression, which does not equate to murder. There are many more claims by Griffith that he was unable to substantiate, prove, show how the result of the trial would have been any different, and was not able to prove prejudice because of the deficient performance of his counsel. On September 24th, 2021, the court decided that Griffith failed to meet his burden to show by a preponderance of the evidence that he received ineffective assistance of counsel in any manner, and none of the aspects listed in the 150-plus page appeal nor their supplemental briefs were founded. His petition for writ of habeas corpus post-conviction release was denied. On January 5, 2022, the defense again filed a notice of appeal to the Supreme Court of the state of Nevada from the denial of his petitions for writ of habeas corpus post-conviction ruling. As of the recording of this podcast, another appeal has not yet been filed. Jason Griffith is currently in custody at the High Desert Penitentiary in Indian Springs, Nevada, with inmate number 1125188. His next projected parole eligibility date will be January 1st of 2026. Years later, friends and family members still leave Debbie messages on a Facebook page created in honor of her. But I am going to read you a Facebook post from Debbie's personal account so you can get a sense of who Debbie was as a person. I, heart emoji, life. The arts and my passion in life, dancing, modeling, and of course music, in which makes dancing the art that it truly is, smiley face. However, it's dancing that has given me many opportunities. I am a ballroom Latin dancer, as well as a hip-hop dancer. I, heart emoji, modeling and acting just as much. I enjoy good friendships, good company, family, music, and playing my guitar. Smiley face. I earned three degrees in college. 
Bachelor of Science degree in international business, a master's degree in finance, and I went to law school and earned my Juris Doctorate degree in criminal law. I was born and raised in the beautiful islands of Puerto Rico and lived in Baltimore, Maryland and Washington, D.C. for 12 years. I am well-cultured, quick-witted, intelligent, considerate, and humorous. I'm blessed with a substantial amount of common sense and most say, quote, too smart for my own good, smiley face. I am confident, tolerant, loving, realistic, big-hearted, and completely uninterested in shallow, pretentious people. I am naturally curious and analytical, which makes me pretty adventurous and willing to try almost anything once. I am also very driven, ambitious, determined, and dedicated, qualities that permeate every aspect of my life. I have broad taste and interest. My partner in life is someone willing to jump out of a plane with me, spontaneous. Then relax, watch the sunset, and just cuddle, romantic and a lover. If there is a way to be outgoing and tranquil at the same time, I'm it. It's important to live life to the fullest as you don't know what tomorrow will bring or if it will be here, but still have a good outlook and presence for the future. And as always, remember to rock on. Well, Puerto Rock, as they know it. Smiley face. That gave me chills. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, the same thing uh, and feeling the same way. When she said, or if it will be here, I was like, oh my gosh. I know. But I actually have something that's going to give you even more chills. Okay. So because this case was such a high profile case in the Las Vegas area at the time, Mm -hmm. there was crazy amounts of media broadcasts. I mean, you name it, people, it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like this girl was everywhere, especially when she was a missing person. I mean, her name was on billboards. Like this became such a big case in the area so to all the locals everybody knew what was going on at the time so with that said and on the topic of the whole goosebump thing i'm going to give you a little bit more so griffith was actually like i know he was a cirque du soleil dancer but he was also an an aspiring rapper Hmm. so he was lucky because Debbie promoted his songs on her MySpace page. Do you remember when you used to be able to like pick your theme song on your yes. page? It was so funny. Like, I think that's hilarious now because obviously, you know, the things that we use now, like Facebook, Instagram, that kind of stuff, it doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. But if you think back to that, like if you went to somebody's page and you were sitting next to a friend, like they knew whose page you were on because yes, of the music that was the playing. Music, yeah. yeah. It wasn't oh even gosh. a secret whose that page was the you were best, looking at. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so Debbie had taken the single that Griffith had released and placed it on her MySpace page to like help promote it for him, yeah. which is crazy because obviously she had a following, right? She mm-hmm. was sexually attractive female in the the spotlight i Mm -hmm. mean she had definitely had a following so it was very lucky for griffith that she even took this and and promoted it the way that she did so this song that she promoted is titled sex games g-a-m-e-z just Mm -hmm. for the record and they actually made a music video together so it's very cheaply done if you go and watch it. <laughs> it's very cheaply done. Um, when you go to YouTube, you're going to search for sex games ending with a Z by Blue, B-L-U. That's what he went by in the arts industry. 
And you, if you watch this video, first of all, it's going to give you chills, but you're going to see that it's very like low production. Like they just yeah. did it themselves in like a bedroom. Yeah. You could tell there was like no funding or anything like that for like an actual photographer to come in or videographer to come in and the lighting was terrible. <laughs> And the beginning part was in black and white. It just, it was very poor quality. Yeah. But you can tell they tried, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. You give them, you give them that. So because of what you can imagine that this song is about, um, with the title being Sex Games, it was a promiscuous video. I mean, there was no nudity or anything like that as far as on her part. Um, But she was, she could be seen licking his chest and kind of rubbing on him and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So the creepy part is... It cuts to them playing a video game. So after the song is over, like the the video continues. Mm-hmm. So it cuts to them playing a video game. And I don't know if this is acted out or if this really did happen, but in the video, she wins, right? So they're kind of talking crap back and forth to each other, just playing, you know, and he walks away. He takes his shirt off and throws it at her playfully, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So then... Uh, she kind of looked at him and he pounces on her on the bed and they're kind of again being playful. Then she mentions that he hurt her neck and he says, good, that's what you get. And again, this is all kind of well, playful. Laughing, yeah, but knowing this, but knowing what we know story, now, yeah. this is where the goosebumps come yeah. in. So he said, good, that's what you get. While they're both laughing, you know, everything like that. He proceeds to slap his ass that is facing the camera and he has like black panther <laughs> boxers on and he comments he makes a comment about them. Yeah, yeah. Then the video ends with her saying this, quote, "What is this? A domestic abuse violence video?" Chills. And then it ends. Yeah, like that's the why, whole video. Okay, so my question though to that is like why are you going to keep that in? Like what part of that is Yeah, why would sex you not games? take that out of the the it's weird. video? Oh, anyway chills though right it, it is because that was prior to everything that happened obviously and so knowing what happened and how it played out it's just kind of like it just adds wow. to it yeah it just adds to it it's yeah. okay and then so as i said there was a lot of media about this so of course there's going to be a lot of follow-up to this kind of stuff so her mother and sister debbie's mother and sister elsie and celeste along with the mother and sister of griffith went on the Dr. Phil show. Of course they did. Yeah. (laughs) And it was like mostly mutual respect as much as possible with them, each standing up for, you know, their own sides or whatever, their respective sides. But they were mostly being respectful throughout. Um, Debbie's family thought that Griffith should serve life in prison. And Griffith's side thought he shouldn't be in prison for his whole life and that the truth was not what was being portrayed in the media at the time. Um, So his mother, Griffith's mother and sister, were indicating that they felt that he definitely should have some punishment, but one that was equal to the facts and truth and didn't believe that he should serve life in prison because they don't believe that he was a cold-blooded killer. Mm-hmm. So in response to that, Celeste said, quote, I do want to say that even if your son did ask for help, he still knows right from wrong. No matter what anyone says, he still knows right from wrong. End quote. Griffith's mother responded by clapping with the audience and saying, quote, you're right. You're right. I will clap for you. And I would like to say to you that like my son knows right from wrong, so did your sister, end quote. Celeste responded by saying, quote, that's right, but 
She did not take his life. Your son took my sister's life. End quote. Griffith's mother said, quote, I do understand that. End mm-hmm. quote. So the episode ends, you know, with them, you know, everybody clapping, the audience mm-hmm. clapping and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I'm sure it goes to a commercial or something, but that was kind of the extent of like their conversation on that show. But obviously, like I said, lots of media attention. So of course they're doing these interviews. They're trying to bring to light what's going on with her sister. Mm-hmm. She was in the media ahead of time prior to her body being found. So she followed up with that. I mean, she was very much like trying to get the truth out to everybody that would listen and mm-hmm. try to find her. So piggybacking off of the whole media thing right so when this story first broke some members of debbie's family didn't want books or documentaries made about the case so in the facebook group um love and remember debbie flores navaris the following message was posted it goes like this it has come to my attention that writers to include certain tv channels are in the process of interviewing to produce tv media stories or book in reference to deborah's tragic event If anyone knows who or whom are involved, I ask that you provide me with the information so I can contact them and have them stop any such activities. My daughter's death is not for profit, and that includes family, friends, or anyone else that is not the mother or father on a mutual decision together. I have been approached several times, and it is sad just how they act as scavengers to get a story or a book just to get ratings to their viewers or to make a profit. My daughter, Deborah, would not even think about doing such a thing to profit from someone else's tragedy. If you had a loved family member knowing you will never see any more alive that was taken from you in a violent way, would you like approve someone else to make a book or TV media activity to profit from it? So you can kind of tell, like, at least she I can. Her, she was really upset, and so this was written heavily off of emotion. You can probably tell that... Um, English is likely her second yes. language too because <laughs> there's a little bit of some confusion in there on like grammar yeah. and stuff but you can just feel the emotion seeping from that yeah. post I mean it's just terrible yeah uh, okay so they didn't want it initially does that mean that something ended up happening did they end up re- releasing something yeah so over time things kind of morphed and so Rosalind Sanchez stars as Debbie in the Lifetime movie Death of a Vegas Showgirl, which is based around this case. Donzel Gordon played the role of Griffith. There is also a book by Diana Montaigne and Carolina Sarasa titled Dancing on Her Grave, The Murder of a Las Vegas Showgirl, which the film is based on. So Rosalind had stated, quote, We had to be very impartial, she said to the Review Journal. We present four ways because there's four different stories of what happened that night that he killed her. So we show every single one of those moments and it's up to the audience to decide what they think really happened, end quote. I guess we'll never know whether her family ended up giving their blessing on releasing a book in a movie, but I hope one way or the other that, you know, if things have to be the way that they are and we can't have Debbie back, I hope they do profit from that. Yeah, I, I would hope so too. Wow. I mean, there's so many things to add about like the media and stuff on this case. I mean, it was such a high profile case. I feel like we could go on all day about that. But I mean, the amount of articles that I found, mm-hmm. that's why we read her Facebook page instead of an article this week, because <laughs> there was literally thousands. I yeah. mean, there's so many out there. It's crazy. But but I think it was good that we read that because it gave more of an insight on her, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Having like a, a statement from her, I think is just so powerful. So 
I'm glad we read it too. Um, so I do want to move into the discussion questions, but before we do, um, I wanted to read a quote to you that I also found was worded in a way, like we've had this happen a couple times already on this case, um, that kind of put things into perspective for me. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to like read this to you. This is from the Clark County District Attorney, David Rogers. He was explaining that Columbo will likely not face charges. That was the topic of discussion. Okay. He said, quote, not only did he help us recover the body, he also told us the circumstances of the killing. There are a lot of times that we have to negotiate with sinners to get to the devil. And I found like that to be so real, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. hit home because as we were talking about Columbo earlier, it all seems a little convenient to me. Oh, you were there and you happened to break up a fight mm-hmm. and then you happen to leave and Griffith happens to kill Debbie when you're not there. Then you happen to come back after the fight yeah. that caused her to be dead. She's already dead. He said she was cold. So, it's so been a while. it had been a minute, right? Then he says, oh, well, I helped him dispose of the body, but he was the one who cut him up. I was just standing watch. Like, it all seems really convenient mm-hmm. for Columbo. However, I don't want to take away from the fact that I do believe that Griffith did this mm-hmm. with my whole heart. And I don't believe that Columbo's necessarily responsible. But I really hate that he didn't have any punishment whatsoever. Like in our case in the last two weeks, parts one and two, we were talking about how in West Virginia, that if you're even associated with the person that committed that crime, that you're also held to life in prison with mercy. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he wasn't even remotely in trouble or anything like that. And if you recall, Griffith was in the back of the police car telling them, oh, make sure nobody else is arrested. So I was going to, I was actually going to talk about that because I've, Okay, so also in the very beginning, do you remember when Casorso was stating that she, you know, they tried to come to her house to try to drop off the tub? Mm -hmm. She literally stated that she was afraid of Columbo. Right. Why? So this all seems a little convenient. So it's like, who is this guy? Right. You know what I mean? Like, why why is she so scared to come forward? And then why is Griffith kind of just like... No one else is going to get arrested, right? But the, no one else. So right? we're talking about this, right? And we think it sounds convenient. However, we do have to remember that in the appeals for him, like that he has filed, nowhere in there did he point the finger at anybody else. Because something I, honest, okay, you want to know what my little uh, conspiracy theory is? What is it? Columbo is a big name, probably. Mm-hmm. Somewhere within maybe the Vegas gangs or whatever. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff out there like. Right. <laughs> behind the strip scenes right. and glamour and everything like right. that. There's a lot of nasty things that go down. Yep. So I'm wondering if he, he got into it with this guy or he that was his roommate, right? So mm-hmm. like he probably knew some dirt somehow, some way. Right. But he knew that if he was to drop his name, he'd probably get more issues thrown at him like than what he has put now. Out for him or something. Yeah. Like it's interesting too because like that's totally possible. But I always wonder like my, my question, I guess, on this has always been, in order to answer our question about this conspiracy theory, is how... It says that they're roommates and they're a friend. How is he a friend? Was he in the show business? Right. They like, don't where did where he meet from. this guy? Mm-hmm. So that's... I want to know what their relationship is outside mm-hmm. of being roommates. Like, how did they become to be roommates? Did they, like find a craigslist ad or like you know what i mean or were they friends did they work together yeah what did he have something over him you know what 
There's what happened? There's something else going on. Yeah. Or did Columbo do this and Griffith had to take the fall for it? But Because it's, it's I feel like, like that can't be the case, though. And I'm just going to put this out there because he, I don't think he would be appealing. No. It I think, he, so Griffith for sure did it. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, I think. I genuinely feel like there's something that we don't know about Columbo. Yeah, there's more involvement from him than he was willing to admit. But just the fact that he put it in that way, um, just to say it again, like there are a lot of times that we have to negotiate with sinners to get to the devil. Mm-hmm. It it blew my mind. Like, okay, so Columbo's a sinner. Got it. But we're trying to get to the devil, Griffith. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's so crazy. Okay, it just so- goes to show that like nothing is ever going to be fully resolved nothing right it yeah and even if someone is put on trial and you know like sentenced that might not be the end of it yeah our our justice system is flawed for sure um the only thing that makes me think maybe we're off track just a little bit on this is the fact that celeste has been very vocal about this whole thing and nowhere in there did she come out and say anything about the fact that she thought that he had more involvement or anything like that and the fact that in Griffith's appeals, nowhere in there did he say anything about, like, taking lesser responsibility over Columbo. He blamed mm-hmm. Debbie for the whole thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I was self-defense, da-da-da. Like, Columbo never comes up in his appeals. So it makes me think, like, it's possible that there's more that we're missing or we could just be going down a bunny trail that's not really there. <laughs> but one way or the other, regardless of that, we can all agree to the fact, and even Griffith can, agree to the fact that he killed Debbie and he is being held responsible for that. Yeah. Okay, so. <sighs> discussion question time. Woo-hoo. This is my favorite part. <laughs> Especially after this episode, man. Yes. I'm ready. So with that in mind, like, right, we're talking about the fact that Griffith did it. My question to you is... So do you agree with the fact that it was in self-defense? And the reason I ask this is because he invited her to his house. Mm -hmm. So she got ready and went to his house because he requested that she go there. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's Mm self-defense. And he's saying, oh, she was so violent. She was so terrible. But Mm -hmm. to me, it's like, but you invited her over knowing that. Mm -hmm. So if you've called police so many times and you need so much help, why were you inviting her over for movie night? Okay. Hold up. <laughs> Hold up. Okay. Let, let's go back to the basics. Mm-hmm. Okay. This little Puerto Rican woman was what? 5'2"? Mm-hmm. And this guy was 5'7". Mm-hmm. 172 pounds. She was maybe 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. You're telling me that you couldn't get her off of you? Well, and even the prosecutor said it's one thing to like hold somebody yes. until they knock out just but to like to for self defense. Completely die in your hands. Right. Completely different. That's completely and different. Just kind of going and again another bunny trail, but back to Columbo. He had no reason to to hurt her, right? Right. But motive. This man, he wanted that relationship with Ro to work because she said we can give love a chance if you dump Debbie. Right. And you know what? She might have had history. And like, okay, maybe TMI for the podcast, but you guys like, I've had past relationships where I can get pretty intense too. Right. When you're in love, like, yes, sometimes you get heated. Right. I've never like slashed a tire, but I mean, I know I've gotten very verbal in certain cases, mm-hmm. not to the point where I'm going to kill somebody because I can't get over it mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. But like, Things get heated, and I get that for both sides, right? Right, right. But like the prosecutor did say, he could have stopped, 
where she was unconscious, Mm -hmm. not to death. Mm -hmm. And she could have stopped, you know, in whatever argument. So maybe that's where they're both at fault. But taking it past that level. Okay, so that's my next question. We'll, okay, okay. we'll move that and then we'll snap back. But like, so what is what is it that causes a person to snap then? So you said your verbal argument, like what in that situation, thinking back into that relationship where you got to that situation to the point where you were like verbally escalated, what would cause you to go over your threshold and feel the need to murder somebody? Like what would cause that? Because he had no history, in, right? Right, no history. So what, what would cause but, that? Okay, so... Sin City is where we are located right now, right? Mm. He's been here. He's experiencing all these different wonders of Sin City, of like dancing and meeting all these amazing looking women Mm -hmm. and just having this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I feel like that can change a person in itself. Oh, And then being very heated and in the moment and knowing that if he's had altercations with Debbie before – He's not going to just be able to, like, let her go. Mm-hmm. He's not just going to say, hey, I'm done with the relationship. Like, let's move on. She's not going to let that happen. Right. So maybe in his, like, sense, I don't know, where he just had, like, a moment of, like, you need to do, like, this is the only way. Right. And that's, like, almost mental illness. Right. But it's, like, I don't know, dude. It's so crazy. And it's the so one crazy thing I to want... think that even someone could snap like that. Right. With no history. Right. And what I want to like, that's why I'm saying like what causes them to get to that point. But what I do want to point out is that it's alleged that they had an argument. It This, I mean, for all we know, he invited her over for the sole purpose to, do to yeah. murder her. Yeah. Especially knowing the knowledge that we have from Roe. Right. Stating that what, just a few days before this. Right. She basically offered, saying that we can make this work Mm -hmm. if you drop Debbie. So do you think it was premeditated? I think a part of it was. Why do you think they were watching Dexter? Another another insert. Right. (laughs) Right. Living in Sin City, watching Dexter, having two women that you're just kind of going back and forth with. Okay, so we've gone over a couple of different discussion questions, but I don't know that we actually fully answered them for the purpose of our discussion question specifically. <laughs> so the first one that I had posed to you, was it self-defense? Yes or no? No. Okay. The Fuck sec- that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just had to. No. Yeah. I no. I agree. I do not believe that it was self-defense either. Um, number two was what can cause a person to snap? We had listed, you know, a, it could be like the lifestyle. You could have mm. had a moment, a weakness, something like that. I think that just to add to that, a few things that I had thought about was that love, right? Mm-hmm. We had talked about that he was trying to pursue Roe. Mm-hmm. So maybe love of a different person mm-hmm. caused that. Uh, money, which could not necessarily play into this particular circumstance. But I'm just saying like yeah. in general, what could cause a person to snap? I feel like there's snap? a lot of like red collar criminals that's just have yeah. nothing in the past yeah. and then it's all money and then boom right and well when we're talking about the fact that maybe Columbo was involved if that if that is true and he was part of the gang maybe yep. there was money involved i mean we don't know yeah. and i'm not necessarily saying that this had to happen in this case but just in general any mm-hmm. person to snap right right like what would cause them to be pushed over that threshold so i guess we talked about like the lifestyle and that kind of stuff love money i think also being 
And especially, maybe not necessarily for women, but I feel like especially for men being like threatened yes. in any way, whether it's like their, their integrity, ego. their ego. Yes. Even if it's physically, you know, they might feel like, oh, Homeboy I'm Homeboy turned that down Buffalo Wild Wings. Yes. To fix his six pack. So like, he has self-control. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just like, that stood out to me like, what? You're yeah. crazy. Yeah. Down. Couldn't do it. <laughs> turning down some delicious wings. Come on. Right. But on that same thought of like feeling like threatened, also the other side of that would be like feeling protective of something or someone, you know? I don't think he was feeling protective. I don't think for him necessarily, but again, just going back to any person. protective of himself, being very selfish in that moment. So just, I mean, like any person in general, like I said, doesn't necessarily have to be this case, but feeling protective of something or someone, like if you felt like maybe they were being threatened, you know, so you had to protect them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the other thing, which I think probably does belong in this case is wanting a change without wanting to take the proper steps to get that result. So, oh, for sure. you know, wanting to have Debbie out of the picture, but not wanting to break up with her in the proper manner. Yes. Like, not break her, break up with her, you know? Yeah. Not break her neck. <laughs> right. Um, and then the third question was, that we've gone over so far, is was this premeditated? And we had said that maybe it was, because Roe had stepped up and testified that she had presented him Offered, basically yeah. with an ultimatum. But I think that we have to look at the other side of that, that it could be maybe no, because he has no childhood trauma, or major concerns like, you know, a violent history or a criminal record or drug abuse or literally nothing. I mean, his his upbringing he reported was loving. I mean, so I can't even ask you nature or nurture because... Okay, like, wait. No, no, no. I feel like I can answer that one. Late onset nurture. Late onset <laughs> nurture. I, what is that? I feel like you just diagnosed him. <laughs> You want to talk about his mental health? You got it. You have late onset nurture. <laughs> disorder. You have a disorder on that. Late onset nurture disorder. Oh my gosh, we should make this a thing. <laughs> we need to get this in the DSM-5. Oh my gosh. But it's kind of true because if he has, I mean, I'm sure we can see this in so many cases. Like, you look at anybody, right? And they meet somebody new, they move to a new town, and they become a completely different person. Be- uh-huh. Because it is human nature to transition how we act depending on who we're around uh-huh. on a day-to-day basis. Uh-huh. So late-onset nurture is a freaking thing. Disease. It's a thing. <laughs> this disease is a thing. I think uh, it's true. Um, the only reason I said that I can't necessarily ask you is because he's not, like, a serial killer. But, I, I mean, he's we can definitely disease. agree that he wasn't like groomed or grown in a in, right, a, in an environment that yeah. would promote this i right. mean even his mother he didn't promote mo- it when she was yeah, on tv exactly the mom was still respectful and mm-hmm. like showing respect and stating he did make a mistake mm-hmm. however you know she didn't agree with the longevity of his term right so that alone shows you that yeah he had a good mom like he was right. the mom probably did everything that she could to raise this man to be a good person right i but agree Depending on the circumstances, he ended up making a very bad one. Yep, I totally agree with you. Um, and I only have one more discussion question for you. Okay. Did he receive the correct punishment? Mm-hmm. So he was sentenced to life in prison with mercy, which means he had the possibility of parole after 10 years due to the Nevada law. So do you think that he got the correct punishment and why? 
Hmm. I mean, I kind of go back and forth on this too. It's kind of weird to me that he didn't express a lot of remorse, mm-hmm. you know, within the, the... Or any. Yeah. I mean, he said he felt bad. So, I mean, that's like 1%. He said he felt bad for all involved, <laughs> meaning like himself. <laughs> and like... And his mother. And Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> that's who he was protecting the So, I feel like he definitely deserves to be there. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I really, I think that in order for me to answer this question, honestly, I think I need to have a little bit more background within the jurisdiction. Because I, I, I want to be able to compare it to, like, other things. You know, like, I don't have enough knowledge to compare what he's sentenced to. Because, for example, back in the day, how much time people got for having marijuana. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's mm-hmm. like, that was stupid. Because look at it now. But going back, okay, so going back to what we talked about kind of within the first few episodes, meaning of the prison system, right? Mm -hmm. It is meant to correct and put you back onto the streets. So something that was like this, where it was like a snap thing, it wasn't, from what we hope, it wasn't predetermined. Mm -hmm. You know, like he serves... He serves his years and then he's able to let free and still have a life where he can try to make up for what he did and be better. Because mm-hmm. that's ultimately what we want. You know, that's right. like, that's the good part of what we want. But I completely understand where, like, Celeste is coming from, where she's like, no, dude, you belong there forever. Like, you took a life, your life is getting taken too. Mm-hmm. So it, I'm torn. I am like literally torn on both ways. It's hard for me to say. Right. Um, I believe yes. Okay. And the reason is, is because there's a lot of talk about her aggression and all this kind of stuff. But honestly, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what she did. She didn't deserve to be lured to his home, dismembered and thrown away in a bin like garbage. Yeah. And she, I mean, she was someone's sister and daughter and they loved her. So the whole, and yeah. I, to me, like, had it been, oh, I, I, I was you know, in a heated moment and I, adrenaline, I didn't realize how hard I was on her neck. And then he reported it and stuff like that. That would be different than chopping up her body, putting it in a bin, burying it in cement, then chopping it away to like get back the body, put it in a different bin, pour concrete on it again. To me, whether it was premeditated or not, the fact that he tried to conceal it was that's to me, that's he deserves life, and the fact that they gave him the pos- the you know the possibility of the eligibility of parole is probably fair in that he's not a serial killer. Nobody else was harmed in this mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But to me, I wish that that minimum was more than ten years. Like mm-hmm. I wish it was maybe twenty to life. Then I would feel better about it. Yeah. So basically, the only thing that I'm doing at this point is hoping he doesn't make parole in 2026. He'll serve a few more years, and then when he comes up eligible for another parole hearing, then it can be left up to, you know, the parole board mm-hmm. to make the correct decision based on what we know the family is going to say when they go to the hearing and and that victim impact statement and stuff like that. So to me, I think he did get the correct punishment. However, I wish that the law in Nevada was not 
like the mercy wasn't after 10 years. I wish it was a little bit higher. That's so true. You know, like what you mentioned about what he did after the fact, because Mm -hmm. he was literally standing outside the door from Columbo's records. And when he came up, he said, you need to change my diaper. Like that whole, like change my diaper thing. Yeah. This is going to be a diaper changing experience. Instead of saying that, you know, a good person would be like, okay, let's go to the police station let's turn yourself mm-hmm. in and figure out how we can help like solve this mm-hmm. instead of okay let's go get a tub let's go get some cement we're gonna put her body in there we're gonna duct tape her legs to her right. chest so that she can fit like okay yeah I take back everything that I said earlier he deserves to be there <laughs> god I am so flippy floppy all of you addicts know already <laughs> but the so but the floppy. opinion that you have is going to be some one of our listeners you know what i mean and so mm-hmm. it's okay for us to have a difference of opinion and and that's perfectly fine i just to me it's the aftermath that yeah. really kills me and like remember the mom making the statement of like oh you know her organs can't be donated mm-hmm. like all that kind of stuff had he killed her and then immediately called the police and said it was in self-defense and realized what he did when he took his hands off of her neck and looked at her right dead limp body Mm -hmm. at that point he should have been like holy shit what did i do like what is going on what can i do to help right instead of waiting for her body to be like cold i I can just like picture him being outside like smoking a joint just waiting for colombo to come back and be like hey bro i fucked up right like what are we gonna do you're never going to believe this. Yeah. Like, right. no remorse. No remorse Not again. And there know? was no time for, like, grieving or anything like that. I'm sure he didn't shed a single tear. No. He literally was sitting there and waiting for Columbo to come back. Probably texted him, bro, you got to get back here. Yep. And by the time he and got back there, he had come up with this that random body fucking is plan. Clo- is right. clothes. And oh, that body is cold. Right. And the fact that he came up with the plan of getting a tub, getting a cement getting the cement and m- mixing it and these are all the ways that they're going to dispose of it and they're going to keep it at somebody else's house and all this stuff like you oh had to gosh. come up with that plan either on the fly really fast mm-hmm. which or while to you me were doing is it. pretty genius or while for, you were doing it no or premeditated mm-hmm. to me I mean so you either came up with that on the fly or it was premeditated yeah. and are we going to give him enough credit to the fact that he was able to come up with that solution Within that fast. Few, yeah. But the fact that the body was leaking the first time and just oh imagining gosh. them like going in and like literally getting the tools to chisel it away and just redo it again is just like, it's it too much for me to but, give him any amount of okay. remorse. Side note, I'll be fucking pissed if that was my house. Right. Coming home mm-hmm. to that scene still mm-hmm. in the living room mm-hmm. and then looking at my cabinets and they're freaking sealed with that insulation crap. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I did a Google Maps on this house uh-huh. and there's people like living there. Ah! Yeah. Can you imagine? Ah, <laughs> creepy. I mean, I'm sure it's been like remodeled, but damn, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> no. No, thank you. On to the next. That's right. <laughs> And as always, we will post these on our Facebook page. So head over to Facebook, search for Crime Addicts Pod, do the whole, you know, like, share, follow, all good stuff. Um, And then scroll down until you see episode 14 discussion questions. The first one is going to be, what is self-defense? Number two, what can cause a person to snap? Three, was this premeditated murder? And four, did the killer receive the correct punishment and why? So head over to Facebook. We'll also post a picture of them. And 
If you have anything else that you want to add or any more comments that you would like to add, go ahead and post them there as well. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on this clown who worked in the circus industry where he belonged. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.